Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi friends. We're gathered today to study the Gospel and Christian history, uh, praying the way for the restoration. This is the first part of this presentation that we recorded earlier, but it didn't work, so we're going to try it again today. Uh, you've got peace. You had the second piece already, but now now you're going to get the first. We'd like to remind you to listen to Golden Gems Radio uh, to get some inspiring messages from the past, and also prepare yourself for the tour to the Holy Land this October if you're interested. Whatever in Christ divinely organized church after his ascension? That's a great question. Um, we're going to address that question today. For a season, it flourished. Um, just a short season, but first season. Luke wrote that the Lord added to the church daily. And on another occasion, he, he wrote that the believers were the more added by the Lord, multitudes with the men and women. Surrounded was the spread of the gospel in the holy city that the scriptures record. Quote, the number of the disciples that multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and in great company the priests were obedient to the faith. So it appears to be a successful time for the history of the church. The headquarters of the church remained in Jerusalem for 10 to 12 years after the Savior's ascension, but in the interim the persecution became very intense. As a result of this persecution, the saints were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word, which of course was in fulfillment of prophecy. Of the scattering of the Beatrice noted, quote, the great good came out of what was intended to be an evil, and the gospel was more widely preached. This dispersion this dispersion also occurred because faithful saints left the confines of Jerusalem, knowing of the imminent destruction of the city as prophesied by the Savior himself. Christians were considered atheists because they denied the divinity of Alex with their own God, which wasn't accepted prior to that time. They did not have a, a geographic or ethnic origin, not being claimed by the Jews. They even considered themselves strangers. Every foreign land was their homeland, and every homeland was their foreign, was their foreign land. It was very tough to be a Christian at this time. It was also illegal to be a Christian. The Roman Empire only recognized those religions and ethnic groups that existed from the beginning of their empire, so Christianity did not qualify. This is written by Urban and Sunquist, who are not members of the church. The church, its members, were only were, were not only persecuted by the Jews, who were offended by their teachings that the law of Moses had been fulfilled in Christ, but they were also persecuted by the Roman Empire. However, neither of these sources of persecution were the cause of the apostasy. Rather, they were seen by the members of the church as one of the signs of the children of the church, the part of the price they paid to be members of it. The persecution ebbed and flowed depending on the Roman ruler at the time and the region where the Christians lived. Emperor Decius, 251 CE, Resolved to eradicate Christianity by requiring all Christians to appear before a magistrate, renounce their religion, and other sacrifices, to the, and offer sacrifices to the gods of Rome. While many remained steadfast, others gave way to terror and either joined in heathen worship 
or potential foster, foster advocates, they had done so. It's time of greater apostasy. The work left unfinished by Decius was taken by Valerian, whose decrees included special enactments against all Christians of rank and the death of several bishops and deacons. After a brief reprieve, in 303 CE, Diocletian determined to exterminate all Christians. A series, a series of edicts, each more rigorous than the preceding, resulted in the prisons soon being filled with bishops and deacons. There are very many who submit to imprisonment, torture, and death. Not a few lack the courage to face the terror and save the lives at the cost of Christian fidelity, sacrificing the heathen gods and give up copies of the scriptures at the demands of the magistrates. Historians believe that about 10,000 Christians were martyred. A much larger problem was dealing with those who abandoned their faith in the face of, in the face of persecution. So while 10,000 were martyred, more than much more than 10,000 left the church. More suited for the church was the destruction of Christian books. Scriptures were considered to be holy, literally another form of the incarnation of the word. Testus, a Roman historian, wrote of the brutal deaths of some of the early Christian martyrs, quote, Some were nailed on crosses, others sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the fear of dogs, others again smeared over with combustible materials, we use his torches to illuminate the darkness of the night. Terrible things happen to the Christians. This is a sh short little film show that will give you some of the idea of what happened to them. His prophecy was true. For the next few years, Romans led the worst persecution against Christian people. This was the story of the early church. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to be Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogate those two whether they are Christians and those who confess I interrogate at the same time and third time, threatening them with punishment and who, those who participate or rescued. Remember Trajan, executed those who refused to deny their faith. Second century human historian Testus wrote the following. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guild and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hate for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames to be burned. Served as a nightly illumination whether day or not, daylight, day or night. Ray Christian Paul's Justin Martyr wrote this. Though beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and chains and fires and all other kinds of torture, we do not give our confession, but the more such things happen, the more do the others, large numbers, become faithful. It's truly incredible. Ignatius of Antioch was a first century student of the original apostles of Jesus. Ignatius wrote letters while in the final chapter of martyrdom in Rome, and that living had he then suffered death by being by lions in Roman Colosseum. In the early documentation called the Martyrdom of Polyarp, written by the Church of Smyrna to the Church of 
Philomelium, we read about Qualicarp, a student of the Apostle John, being sentenced to be burned at the stake. The burning flames, the burning failed, and he was stabbed to death by the Romans. Roman historian, historian Sutinus documented the Christian persecution. Punishment was inflicted on all the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Tertullian, an early Christian defender of the doctrine of the Trinity, wrote of the brutal Christian persecution. He said, The more often we are, are mown down by you, the more is, the number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Church historian Eusebius detailed the heinous torture inflicted on the Christian people. We must admire those who also suffered martyrdom in the, in the native land, where thousands of men, women, and children despising the present life for the sake of teaching of the Savior endured various deaths. Numerous other kinds of tortures, terrible even to even be heard of, were combined to the flames. Some were drowned by the sea, others uh, the heads barely would cut them off. Some died with the tortures, others perished with hunger. The others were crucified, some according to the method commonly employed for the malefactors, yet were cruelly being nailed to the cross with their heads downward, being kept alive until they perished with the cross with hunger. So they were not only nailed to the cross, they were nailed to the crosses upside down. Um, that's how terrible the, the persecution against Christians was. Clement of Rome was a first century elder of the Church of Rome. Who served as secretary as the others in his epistle to the Corinthians, he mentions the pardon term of the apostle Peter and Paul. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors when he was finally suffered martyrdom and departed to the place of the glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul was also obtained to the reward for patient endurance, after being seven times thrown into captivity, cured the flea and stoned. After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having to righteous to the whole world and become to extremely to the West, served martyrdom under the, under the prefix. The city was removed from the world and went to the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. In our cults, we sometimes forget how lucky we are to be able to serve Christ. Keep our ancient brothers and sisters in mind and press on with for Christ, knowing that we stand for the sellers of giants. Have been true to the faith. God bless us all. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what the Savior taught in Matthew 24, 13. Reading of the litany of tortures, insults, and torments heaped upon the other Christian saints is almost more than one can bear. Eusebius spoke of the holy martyrs who endured tortures beyond all description. Soda prayed for the satanic tormentors that Eusebius commented of one martyr that when they had nothing further they could inflict, they at last fastened red hot plates of brass to the most tender parts of his body. Others, he said, had masses melted, masses of melted lead bubbling and boiling with heat poured down their backs. He continued by describing that the iron chair upon which the body was roasted, one who was bound and spit on a stake and thus exposed the food to the assaults of wild, wild beasts. John saw in prophetic vision these faithful men and women who laid their all on the sacrificial altar. 
I sign to the altar the souls of men, them who are slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Then he described their celestial reward in these terms, quote, And where are we going unto every man, one of them? It was said unto them, They should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren, they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Joseph also paid tribute to these early Christian martyrs, quote, May those suffered death at the fiery stake were the honest true Christians according to the light they had possessed. He said, I have seen them, I have seen those martyrs by the year and God has a salvation for them. What a terrible, terrible time to be a member of the church. Period historians know that Christians were persecuted because they would not worship Roman gods or even the emperor himself. Other historians wrote that they did not know the cause of the persecution, simply that it was. However, B.H. Evers noted this, the true cause of the persecution was this, Satan knew there was no power of salvation in the idolatrous worship of the heathen. When Jesus of Nazareth and his followers came in the authority of God, preaching the gospel, he recognized that in that the principles and the power against which he had rebelled in heaven, this was the real cause of the persecution, though it looked under a variety of pretexts. After the stoning of Stephen and the accompanying persecution of the saints, it was recorded that those disciples which were scattered by the priest of the gospel and a great number believed and trusted and turned to the Lord. After Peter received his marvelous vision, he announced the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles, and therefore, after Paul became the mighty messenger to them, a teacher of the Gentiles, and the church continues to grow despite the persecutions. The scriptures know the ten of the times the word of God grew and multiplied. So expansive and explosive was the spread of the gospel that the scriptures record. All they which dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Both these groups so mildly grew the word of God. As a historian, I've studied this intensely, trying to figure out what it was about Christianity that made it so popular. And it occurred to me that this was what it, this is what it was. All the other gods were stone. They were metal. They were, they were um, idols. They weren't real. Jesus was. Jesus lived. He died. He came back to life. This was a gospel that was preached about people that were alive, not people that died, or things that were dead. And it was. A, it was a truly a new thing for these people. In AD 64, Paul declared the gospel was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Their their world. This is influenced the Lord's mandate to the apostles who therefore and teach all nations. Clement of Rome observed that Paul taught righteousness into the whole world and reached the farthest bounds of the West. And he did teach the whole world uh, as they knew it at that time. The author, the author of the Shepherd of Hermas was of similar understanding. He referred to the apostles and teachers who preached to the whole world these references to the whole world, of course, meant the world as that was in then known to them, the was the Mediterranean. The church was no longer a local institution. It was fast becoming a worldwide force, but there was no place, price to be paid. It was quickly adopting the ways of the world, which is a sad part of the apostasy. Just a martyr in Oregon, both reported that slaves of sensibility and sensuality have become pure in morals, Freely forgiving those in need and praying for those their enemies, the conversion, the great conversion of people. 
the recovery of so great a number of persons from licentiousness, injustice, and covetousness could not have been done without divine help. The love of Christians for each other astonished the heathens as the church continues to grow. The fraternal love extended to strangers and Christians in foreign nations was the cause of particular surprise among Christians. Hospitality and alms given were nearly universal amongst believers. Not only were the collections taken for the benefit of the poor, newcomers sometimes give their entire property to the church, as we read in the book of Acts. However, a profession of Christianity placed a gulf between convert and those around him. All agreed the emperor should be obeyed, but if a convert had to choose between him and God, he would choose God. As a result, some doubted whether Christians should hold public office or serve in the military even. Converts were also expected to shun some of the most lucrative employment opportunities that involved the recognition of idolatry, magic, or astrology. Difficult time. Essentially, Christians had to navigate two worlds, oppose evil in all of its forms, purify and elevate that which was worth preserving. They saw this as a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Hence, if there was a danger to laxness, there was an equal danger to unwholesome harshness. Worldliness on the one hand and complete self on the other were the two extremes which all Christians were called to zero away from those extremes. And that's according to Professor Fisher at, at, at Yale. Um, Christianity did, did not begin the birth of Christ, it actually began the resurrection of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, Christians were transformed from a small band of believers to the largest missionary force the world had ever known to that point. Believers were abandoned were emboldened to challenge the established religions of the day, and as a result, Christianity spread like fire from heaven. Within two decades, it had spread to three continents, and by the end of the first century, it was established in Egypt, Nubia, Armenia, France, Italy, Spain, Greece, Cyprus, Germany, Britain, Mesopotamia, Persia, India, Illyria, Dalmatia, Asia Minor, Albania, Libya, and all of North Africa. This was a tremendous growth. You can see the church here in this map, how much they had grown in just a short time. By the end of the first century, just one century, only 1.6 only 0.6 of the world population were Christians, and with 28% having heard the gospel and scripture in six languages. By the end of the second century, over 3.4% were Christians. 32% had heard the scriptures in seven languages. The end of the third century, 10.4% were Christians. 36% heard the gospel and the scriptures in ten languages. And finally. By the end of the 4th century, 17.1% were Christians, with nearly 40% having heard the gospel and the scriptures were in 11 languages. So you can see the tremendous growth of Christianity over the centuries, from 0.6% to 17.1%, from 28 having heard the gospel in the languages, uh, 6 languages, 39% having heard it in 11 languages. Christianity initially because a small movement in Roman Palestine primarily teaching those out of the margins of society. 
Throughout the third century, however, increasingly large numbers of the wealthy upper-class Roman citizens joined the ranks, bringing with them both their wealth and their social respectability. Now Christianity had become the religion of the powerful, and it was entering what might seem be might be seen as an increasingly cozy alliance with high society. That's according to Macala, who of course is not a member of the church. As the number of Christians increased, larger rooms or edifices were required for their meetings. For a time, they probably hired or erected plain rectangular buildings without neighbors or aisles. These buildings were numerous in Roman towns. When these were no longer adequate, they inserted churches on the model of the Roman basilicas. In the first and second centuries, worship was a spontaneous, living expression of religious feeling. As the second century drew to an end, however, worship was looked on more as a service to God and obligation to render. Sermons grew out of long exhortations following the reading of lengthy excerpts of Scripture. Music was simple and consisted mainly of singing and psalms. This was expanded in the 3rd century set to include Greek, Greek, the Greek works. Constantine's conversion in 312, somewhere between 312 and 337 AD, facilitated the rapid expansion of Christianity in imperial protection and support, financial and political. As a result of the imperial favor, Distinct lines of Christian identity became blurred as the church absorbed all things Roman. Additionally, imperial embrace also included a trend towards imperial domination. So sad. Constantine sought to strengthen the theological and liturgical aspects of the church faith by securing a unified statement of doctrines and aspect practices, primarily for political purposes. However, the Donatist and Arian controversies deemed him, denied him this unity and remained unresolved after his death. Yale professor of ecclesiastical history George P. Fisher noted, When Christianity became the religion of the empire, it became the fashion of a luxurious and decaying society. Its vital principles being overlaid by ideas that were foreign, the pure and steady light of a true Christian life, which should have shone abroad over the darkness and confusion of the world, was dimmed by a formal and church piety. The Christian life, being freed from persecution, was now exposed to many subtle, debasing influences from within and without the church. Now this quote which is a quote from a professor, is not a, he's not an LDS professor, he's, he's talking about the apostasy. He's not LDS. The prevalent unspiritual views of the gospel made it possible for multitudes of heathen to pass from paganism to Christianity by no other conversion than a mere change in name. To them, the Christian life seemed nothing deeper than a round of ceremonies and perfunctory duties. So we see the apostasy really starting to kick in now as people are leaving the church, the, the spiritual part of the church, to become part of the, the political entity. They saw baptism an easy means of rescue from perdition, and hence they deferred resorting to the holy labor until frightened by the approach of death. Sad. 
Like their pagan ancestors, they ridiculed and persecuted the more conscientious who endeavored to lead lives of sincere discipleship. The purity of the church was imperiled by the influx of nominal Christianity. The belief of the early church that all of life was consecrated to God gave way before a spirit of Old Testament legalism. So to be a member of the church, you went from being persecuted, probably even killed, but faithful, to being popular and not so interested in the the actual gospel as you were just being a member of the church to be to be popular. Worship was resolved into forms and ceremonies instead of being recognized as the spontaneous expression of Christian feeling. It appears to many to be a round of arbitrarily imposed observances. That's a quote not from me. In the early part of this period, the people not only had access to the scriptures, but they were urged to study them carefully. Some could not read, and others were too poor to buy manuscripts. As soon as Christianity became the religion of the rich and powerful, they built huge churches and adorned them with art and expensive decorations. People began to prostrate themselves before them, and many of the more ignorant to worship them. Saints were chosen guardians of churches. Their relics began to work miracles. This new form of idolatry was condemned by, church, by the church teachers, yet its cause, the extravagant veneration of the saints, was commended by them. The adoration of Mary became prevalent. The doctrine of her perpetual virginity was established in the church. Again, that's by George Fisher, uh, a professor at Yale. However, despite the adorning of art, absent is the representation which modern Christians might expect, but which was nowhere to be found in Christian cultures before the 5th century, Christ hanging on the cross, the crucifixion. Christ in the art of the early church was shown in his human life or sprung to new life, never dead, in the, fashion of the in the fashion of the crucifixions, which were to become so universal in the art of the later Western church. Isn't that interesting? Here we have a non-Mormon McCullough, who's a, who's a professor of Christianity in England, mentioning that in the first five centuries, all the pictures of Jesus were him alive and later became him dying. How sad. In addition, the purity of Christianity had now become corrupted by its alliance with the state. A moral tone of society was enervated, exhausted by hypocrisy. The wrangling of bishops over intricacies of doctrine made only more prominent the unchristian lives of the zealous disputants. The purity of Christianity and the simplicity of its nature had been obscured by the growth of the theoretic idea. Theocratic idea. Theocratic idea. It was now exposed to the new dangers from its alliance with worldly power and its subjection to imperial influence. The accession of Const Constantine found the church so firmly organized under the hierarchy that it could not lose its identity by being absolutely merged in the state. How sad is that? 
But since there was no clearly understood principle defining the respective spheres of church and state, the first Christian emperor and his successors exercised a large measure, large measure of control in ecclesiastical affairs. Now, I've talked to my Catholic friends about this and asked them, what does this mean? They said this is the way the church was saved. Even though everything changed, the doctrines changed, everything, the practices changed, they said this is saving the church. We, of course, call this the apostasy. They assumed to fill, on their own authority, the highest episcopal offices. They convoked general councils and presided over them by their representatives and published conciliar decrees as laws of the empire. Some of the later Greek emperors even went so far as to exercise the right to decide on disputed points of doctrine. Can you imagine a politician doing that? Such usurpations were made possible by the ardent desire of each theological party to enlist the political power on its side and thus to overwhelm its opponents. So important idea. The emperors endeavored to promote the interests of Christianity by their influence and by giving to the church and its clergy new legal rights. Wow. A few churches which Constantine built received revenues from public funds, while others were given the treasures of confiscated pagan temples. Ecclesiastical property now rapidly accumulated. The offices of the church were turned by many into a means of personal enrichment. In fact, the relief from the burden of taxes and various civil duties led a multitude of clergy to the ranks of the higher classes and the possessors of great wealth. As I share these different quotes about the apostasy with you, I want to make sure you know that I'm not quoting anybody who's LDS. Everyone I'm quoting is not LDS, who are just historians who went back and read the articles and have understood what's happened to the church. After the 5th century, the cross was becoming universally familiar as a visual symbol of Jerusalem, of crucifixion and resurrection, and was never far from the portraits of the imperious, imperious Christ, excuse me, staring down from the walls on his servants celebrating below. The closer the church came to society, the more obvious were the tensions with some of its founders' messages about the rejection of convention and the abandonment of worldly wealth. Again, that quote is by McCullough, who's not a member of the church. After Constantine transferred the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, a political vacuum was created in Italy, and the Pope, self-proclaimed Father Bishop, emerged as a temporal leader. As a temporal leader. The Pope became the biggest single proprietor in Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica, obtaining enormous acreage in these lands. His dominions were vast, his church became wealthy, and his political power became absolute. How anybody could not see the apostasy is beyond me. In accordance with the ideology of a theocracy, the priesthood was more and more regarded as a link between God, the Holy Spirit, and the world. This resulted in a strong and growing perception that the clergy should be set up and over the layman making two levels of Christians. 
This contrast tempted the one to a false pride of a superior sanctity, and the other to a dangerous contentment to live in mere external morality. Notice this is a quote. I'm not saying this myself. This is a quote. It's in quotation marks. The primitive identity of church leaders was beginning rapidly forgotten. Was being, was being rapidly forgotten. The lower priesthood offices were marginalized or eliminated, while the office of bishop was being unnaturally and scandalously exalted, and four bishops were exalted above the rest with the title patriarch, which had previously been a name of respect, applied to every bishop, was appropriated exclusively to the bishop of the great sees of Rome and Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. That, of course, comes from George Fisher's book, Not a Member of the Church. The medieval church was governed, and it governed. Temporal leaders in the Middle Ages summoned, presided over councils, and dictated the agenda, thereby partially assisting in determining church dogma, ritual, and administration. No, it says temporal leaders, presider accounts, etc. Men who did not claim any divine guidance approved the appointment of clergy, including bishops, and founded churches, monasteries, and bishoprics. How sad. At the same time, religious leaders served as influential advisors of the kings, sometimes controlled local governing bodies, and, ex and exerted a strong influence on the central government. The state aided the church in Christianizing the population, and the church assisted the state in administering the law. Oh my goodness. Augustine versus the Pelagians. The Pelagians believed that a person could make it to heaven without God's grace. They believed that all we need for salvation was to work hard enough at it and achieve it through our own efforts. Their philosophy, people need to take responsibility for their own actions and not just leave it all up to God to fix it. Augustine's belief, human beings needed God's grace. It was impossible to be, it was impossible to be saved or reach heaven without it. By our nature, humans are sinful creatures, and without God's grace, we will continue to sin and fall off the path salvation. Now this poster of course was made by Augustinians against the Pelagians who were actually more close to our beliefs. The towering figure of the 5th century was Augustine of Hippo, whose writings and ideas dominated Christian theology for centuries, just like Arist Aristotle dominated Greek philosophy. Augustine introduced the term predestination into Christian thought and struggled against Pelagius over free will, eventually creating the doctrines of original sin and abject depravity. Depravity. He wrote more than 1,000 works, including 242 books. During the 5th century, Christianity continued to spread to the farthest corners of the known world, including West Africa, the Isle of Man, and the Irish. Christianity in the 7th century at the end of the 5th century, 42% of the world was evangelized and 22% of the world population were Christians, 
with the scriptures in 13 languages. The Middle Ages, 500 to 1000 AD, have been called the Dark Ages, but for the, but for the Christian Church, the 6th century was anything but dark. With imperial favor, the Church expands and grows in the West, North, South, and East. By the end of the 6th century, 39% were evangelized, 21% were Christian, and the scriptures were in 14 languages. By the end of the 7th century, 31% were evangelized, 22% were Christian, and the scriptures were in 15 languages. The church continues to grow. Now, this is an interesting chart because it shows how it grew, but it also, the apostasy also spread. In addition to the unhealthy secular influence exerted upon the church... Boy, that's an understatement. Another characteristic of medieval Christianity indicating the reality and nature of the apostasy was the striking diversity of belief and practice which persisted. I've been to church in Norway. I've been to church in uh, Central and South America. I've been to church all over the world, and it's the same everywhere you go. Our church is, but their church is different no matter where you went. Since the assimilation of the doctrines of Christ with the philosophies of men produced various Christian sects in the Roman Empire, the medieval church emerged from a heterogeneous foundation. Look at this chart showing all the different uh, ways the church spread out, and all the different beliefs. After the central leadership of apostles and prophets was replaced by the control of numerous bishops, local religious diversity multiplied. Multiplied. Although the disciples taught one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the content and expression of men's faith continued to vary from community to community. The history of Catholic Christianity during the first centuries observed church historians... Observed Catholic church historian. Burnett, Burnett H. Streeter, quote, is the history of a progressive standardization of a diversity which had its origin in the apostolic age. They, of course, claim that the diversity had its origin in the apostolic age, but where it was really happening was the apostasy. Christianity is divided. By the 6th century, there were two divisions in the church. The Roman church, which accepted the Caledonian... The Chalcedonian. Chalcedonian logic called themselves Myophysites. That's a weird word, but that's what they called themselves. Myophytism, Myophysitism is Cyril of Alexandria's Christological formula, holding that in the person of Jesus Christ, divine nature and human nature are united, one or unity, in a compound nature, physis, the two being united without separation, without mixture, without confusion, and without alteration. These were the Christians from Constantinople to the Iberian Peninsula and north into Europe. This shows how they uh, were, were delineated. You got the Myophysite, the historians, etc. This is the other part of Christianity. The Diophysites embraced Diophyatism, 
Greek, meaning to, and physis meaning nature, the Christological position that two natures, divine and human, exist in the person of Jesus Christ. It contrasts with monophyetism and myophyetism. These Christians lived south into the Arabian Peninsula and eastward to India into China. Oops. There's diophysite Christianity is basically the eastern part of Christianity. The diophysites held an optimistic pole of the Christian spectrum of beliefs and human worth, potential, and capacity. Because if Jesus had a whole human nature, it must by definition be good. And logically, all human nature began by being good, whatever its subsequent corruptions. This was a contrast with the savage pessimism that has often emerged from the Latin Western Christianity, following Augustine's of Hippo's emphasis on original sin. That is the bottom line right there. In China, Taoism also had a vision of the original goodness of human nature, which was congenial to diophysites, emphasizing the whole humanity of Christ's separate human nature alongside his divinity. Sadly, the diophysite Eastern Church was never able to attach itself to a ruling family like the Myophysites, like the Myophysites had, the Roman Empire and in fighting amongst them, weakened them at the wrong time, making them easy prey for the uprising Muslims. Well, my friends, it's not difficult to see the history of the apostasy here. Uh, it's going to get worse instead of better. I just want to bear my testimony to you that um, that uh, this really did happen. And it, it, it's, the reason I quoted non-members of the church, and only nine of these people, is I want you to see that the apostasy was is something that's known worldwide. It's not just known by our church. And great scholars and great, um, the greatest scholars actually of Christianity all recognize the apostasy, the corruption of the church after the third century. I bring just many that this is true and that the church did need to be restored by Joseph Smith and, and it was done by angels, etc. I said in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you again for joining us today with another segment with Dr. Ron Bartholomew with his insightful review of Christians and the Gospel. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to join us on the Internet at www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music, in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week with another episode on the Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew.